0: Welcome to the Morphous for Menopause podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Donsky, and I'm a nutritionist in menopause. On today's show, I welcome Dr. Jerry Bailey, an acupuncturist, chiropractor, and functional medicine physician at Lakeside Holistic Health with over two decades in his field. Dr. Bailey is also a prominent expert on men's medicine and leads the world in the emerging science of polyhormonal adrenal testosterone syndrome. Now, here's Dr. Bailey. Welcome to the show, Jerry.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I'm excited to have you on the show. So I want to start out with just give a brief introduction to who you are and what you do and how do you help
1: people? (laughs) <laughs> a brief, a brief scenario of who I am, what I do and everything else. So it's hard to say those things in brief, right? <laughs> uh, so I'm a chiropractor, acupuncturist, and functional medicine. Uh, I specialize in, in men's health and digestive orders, but I also treat a lot of women too. Uh, and my wife does also. Uh, and so it, we, we cover kind of that holistic way of looking at you is finding out what's wrong with you, what's going on, how do we fix it? Um, the male and female systems are similar, but different as we all say, yep. you know, as we all know in there, but symptomology, for things are very similar for both, for both groups. And it's just being able to tease out exactly what's going on with them and how to, how to fix them uh, is really key. So I do a ton of functional medicine. I do a ton of acupuncture, a ton of adjusting, Uh, a lot of patients get everything. Um, Some get one thing uh, within there, but it depends on kind of what's going on with a person and figuring that out. I like to say, I use a little acronym that I use acronyms are so much easier to remember when you're trying to teach the medicine or, or, or learn it and stuff. I always like to use the Finessed, uh or with a D on the end, finesse the uh acronym to to figure out what's going on with somebody. Is it a food issue? Is it uh infection? Is it nutrient deficiency? Is it endocrine hormone itself? Is it is it uh, stress? Is it structure from the chiropractic perspective or cells perspective? There's something wrong with the structures of the cell. Is it environmental? And then the D itself, is it genetic? Is it the DNA that's actually some issues there that we need to look at and figure out how to It's brilliant.
0: I love yeah. that. That's totally, yeah. And I love it because it covers everything. So I, where I'd like to start is explain what functional medicine is for those who may not be familiar with it, but we you know may have heard the term.
1: Right. Right. Uh, that's a really great question to ask uh, because it's such a it's such a broad thing. It's really it's looking at somebody holistically and naturally as best as possible, incorporating both like kind of Eastern and Western uh, natural medicine in both, but also pharmaceutical if we have to or injections and surgery. It's really looking at a person. What does that person need to help with their health um, and defining what health is? You know, medicine is does, does such, has done such a wonderful job of defining disease but has never defined health. And the essence of Western medicine typically is like, well, if you we don't have a disease, you're healthy. When we all know that's completely bogus, you know, your lab work is fine, you know, but I still feel crappy, you know? Uh, so it's really looking at a person holistically and incorporating as much as possible into figuring out what's, what, what's wrong with them. Um, and then giving them all the tools they can to empower them to take care of themselves. Cause I can, I have all the tools and we have all the tools for somebody to, to fix themselves but it's, are they gonna do it? I can't force a person to do it. We have to inspire and, and and coach them through that process to get them going. So it incorporates kind of all of that.
0: I love that. I love the air quotes. You know, we yes. talk about that a lot with like, it's normal lab work, right? Like, but what's the optimal lab work? So it's, but, um, yeah. it's like,
1: yeah, normal is you guys. I mean, normal is as far as you can stick your arms out to the side. That's exactly. normal range because it incorporates every sick person and every healthy person. But we shrink that down to kind of that one percentile on each side, uh, or one quart, you know, one quintile on each side to to say that's more of a healthy range. And even that, you know, can be for a person depending on their physiology and chemistry, could be still too high or too low for them.
0: Yeah. And a really good example of that would be thyroid markers, right? So your thyroid test. So if you're in the normal range, which is like the 0.5 to the 5.5, I live in Canada, so it can go up to like five point yeah. five, which is pretty high. So versus what's the optimal range, you know, for you. So what are some other examples? So we know thyroid would be one example. What are some other examples that you've seen that are kind of in that normal range, but can be way off when you look at it from a functional medicine standpoint?
1: Cholesterol. Hmm. I mean, cholesterol is a huge one is, is if you're at 200 or above you're on a statin right away. Hmm. And, and doctors will look at just that, you know, you know, for cardiovascular risk will say, well, if you're at 200 or above, you're higher risk for cardiovascular. It's like, no, you need to run the full spectrum of the breakdown of those particles to know, are you really there? And then, of course, all the inflammatory markers associated with it, too. So we run Boston Heart Lab typically is what we run to look at or the Cleveland Heart Lab. Those are both great. Uh, Examples of looking truly at cardiovascular risk, we've seen patients with cholesterols of 130. Like, wow, that's great! Like, that's a huge, it's a great number. Well, they're actually producing really bad pro-inflammatory cholesterol. They have all the markers, so they're at high risk for for stroke and heart attack and those things. The doctor's like, oh, you're fine. You're like, no, no, no. You actually need to be on, I'm sorry, a statin, but a, a you know, a red yeast rice type scenario, one of those type things. And then I've seen clients with the familial hypercholesterolemia levels of 600, where it's like. Woo, like, well, this person's a walking heart attack and, but you do the full panel and they're actually fine. They just have high cholesterol levels, but they don't break it down into pro-inflammatory cholesterol. Uh, so it's that looking at that and saying, you know, what's ideal for that person and what's their genetic makeup? How are they breaking things down? So we know better versus just like, oh, here's a number, like, and here's the med for it. It's like, that's, you know, that's cookie cutter. That's not really looking at the person as a whole and seeing things there. So cholesterol is a really, really, really good one there.
0: I'm a really big fan of testing. So no more like it take like I interviewed somebody from the Dutch company and they were saying test don't guess, right? And I I'm, I love it because it's basically taking all that guess work out and by the way saving people so much money going you don't have to go down that rabbit hole or the route of spending so much money time and time. I mean time is money and trying to guess things. So I love the fact that you do testing.
1: I think Yeah, that- I do a, I do a ton of Dutch testing. We run we probably run since we started using we used to use ZRT for salivary, and then we switched over to Dutch because it was so much easier and so much more comprehensive. And um that one we've since we started we've oh, probably two to three thousand, four thousand, something like that of those tests. So very I familiar love, love that it. test. Yeah. It's it's pretty good in standard of care for our practice and for patients is you know, you got to do a Dutch test so we know how your how your stress response. You know, are you have a maladaptive stress syndrome? There it used to be kind of the adrenal insufficiency, adrenal fatigue, those type of things. Well, we all know that's not in the literature, so we have to use what's there. And it's really if you look up maladaptive stress response or syndrome, that's in the literature. So I use that one a ton. And so it's like, are you not responding correctly? Is there some maladaptation there for your stress response? Where are you at within there? And then, what does your reproductive hormones look like as far as? the metabolites of those. Cause oh. we can look at blood, which is still King and Queen to know like, what's the level, but that's a spot check. Like, how are you metabolizing that to know like, Hey, for ladies. Okay. We know for menopause for ladies, docs typically like here's estrogen. Here you go. Just go take some estrogen. You'll be perfectly fine. Well, what if you make pro inflammatory estrogens, you have a high 16 hydroxy or a four hydroxy. What if you have high levels of that? You know, you're at risk for more estrogen based cancers, you know, instead of having the twos. So you know, we run that to know like, you know what, you're not a candidate for estrogen because you convert to those. Let's work some other pathways to really help benefit you better uh, and make it healthier. So you have less symptoms of hot flashes, have less less symptoms across the board of menopause.
0: Yeah. I love that. First of all, Love that because I'm like, I love that you've been brought up. It's such a good segue to get into like, the, I want to talk about the metabolites because I think that's a really important thing. And and that by the way, incorporates your under your finesse, the DNA, which is the genetics, right? So mm-hmm. how do we genetically break down those estrogen metabolites? So into the two, and to the four and to the 16, explain what that means a little bit for those. So for those of you who are listening or who are watching here on YouTube, if you're on our podcast or you're here on YouTube, you can check out some other videos. We will put links below uh, to the interview with the Dutch test and with the woman from the Dutch test, because we do get into a little bit. Her name is Dr. Debbie Rice. We do get Mm -hmm. into metabolites, but I would love you to explain what that means. So for those who haven't listened to Dr. Debbie Rice's interview, but are like, wait a second, my doctor has mentioned HRT to me or even BHRT, which is bioidentical or wait, I, you know, I know that I have very low estrogen because I have all of these signs and symptoms of menopause. We know there's over 85 from the research that we've conducted over the last four, four and a half to five years. So what does it mean for those um, who have like, what do metabolites mean?
1: So metabolites mean is how do you take that estradiol, the estrone or estriol, and how do you break that down? Do you Which ratio do you have it? High twos, fours, or sixteens within there? The fours and the sixteens, we don't like as much. We like the twos much more. And then further down, how are you, meth, you know, methylating that to get it out of the system there to see, are you being able to detoxify that and excrete it out of the system? So when we're looking at that, we're understanding like genetically, what are you predisposition to do? And we can test that. We can test genetics and see how you're breaking, th- how you are predisposed to do things But we don't always know, are you doing that or not? Because environment is such a huge trigger there of either turning you know, we don't want to say turning on, or de- turning on or off genes, like to say, you know, facilitating the process, so to say, or inhibiting the process there. Uh, so is it causing issues there with your genetics? And then we can see from that, like, okay, now we know why there's issues there. It's genetic and then how to correct it from there. So we look at those to say, not just like, here's your estradiol level, which is the main one to know, but how are you getting it broke down? Cause it's great to see, like, if we are on hormone, we want to see with, with the blood work, are you at a, the right, correct level there, you know, within that range there. And then from there, well, that's great. But what if, again, are you breaking it down poorly? And now you're creating more product. You've now just put yourself in a higher risk factors, for estrogen-based cancers. you know, So then we look at those breakdowns and go, where are you sitting at and how are you metabolizing it? So what are you doing? How does your body work there? And if we're seeing not only that, but seeing some issues with other issues going on, we can see that maybe it's a liver issue overall, and we just have to do some liver support and not really worry about other stuff to help you metabolize better.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that's important to note that you mentioned, I'm just going to kind of summarize it for a minute. So there are three types of, for, for those of you who are listening, there are three types of uh, main, three types of estrogen and they break down and they have metabolites that they break into, break down into, and there's the two, there's the four and the 16, and that's basically mainly estradiol, correct? That breaks down. Okay. So the two is the one that we'll call just for the sake of this of simplicity, it's the better or the best form of estrogen. And then there's also four and 16, 16 is the medium range, but four is really not the Good one. Now, actually, when I did my genetics, I found out that I produce mostly when I, when my estrogen breaks down, it mostly breaks down into the four and to Ooh. the 16. Yeah. So I yeah. knew that going into it. So what the Dutch test told me actually was interesting in terms of what's actually happening and then how much of that is in the four 16 versus the two and yep. things that we could do to actually help it. And then the methylation part of it. Okay. Yep. So what I want to do is you, you touched upon that. And I think it's fabulous. So for those who are thinking, so the word of advice is, and just so I understand this correctly is if you're thinking about doing HRT or BHRT bioidentical hormone therapy, first of all, work with a qualified practitioner that understands the breakdown, the metabolites of these estrogens. That is super important. Do you work with patients virtually? Are there, is there a way that people can work with you if they don't What city are you in? So if people wanted to actually come see you versus working sure. you virtually.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho is where, where I am. Uh, we have a clinic here. We have a clinic in Spokane and Liberty Lake, Washington. Also, So we have two States, two States, six licenses between my wife and I. So yeah, we're, it's, you know, a lot of stuff there, um, but those are our main stuff. And we do work virtually with clients also. If it requires like a, per, a person, a gal or a guy needs hormone, uh, we do need to see them in person first in order to do that. Uh, but, you know, we can find a qualified practitioner that can do those, those, those uh, hormones for a person, usually where they live at also.
0: Okay. So now what if somebody, for example, finds out that they are breaking down their estrogen mainly into four or 16, what are some things that you recommend I know that DIM is amazing from bringing the four to the 16. So talk a little bit about DIM and then what are some other things you recommend?
1: Yeah, DIM is great. And it's one of those ones is, you know, we like to take big words and make them shorter because it's easier to say all the time. So that's the one I'm just like, we just call it DIM. There's like diindole, methane, blah, blah, blah.
0: Diindole, methane <laughs> or something. I
1: think. Yeah, so or- I'm just like, we just call it DIM. Make it easy from that, make it easy for us. Uh, because there's so many, other, so many other big words we have to say all the time too. So that one I like because it's going to convert you over to the twos. It's also going to prevent some aromatization of testosterone to estrogen also so if a lady has high testosterone that dims to help stop that um, you can go higher with ladies 200 milligrams and above with DIM. you just have to find the sweet spot for them for men though you don't want to go above 100 and that's something i learned many years ago because 100 is kind of that sweet spot for guys if we get above that it actually increases estrogen production mm of all things, you know, we don't want that. we want to block that. So dim is a great one from there. A lot of your brissetiae vegetables, those ones that have that dim in there, your broccoli, your cauliflowers, uh, your Brussels sprouts, those type ones that have that dim naturally in them, that brissetiae family will do that. Um, some people though are intolerant of that family of vegetables. And it's, and it's interesting when you see, they're like, yeah, I can't do broccoli. I can't do cauliflowers and things. So we try to do as diet as much as possible because, food is medicine. Um, So we try to do that as much as possible. But if we don't see it, then we do add the dim in for them. But those are kind of, I mean, true, that's one of the main ones we use um, for that conversion through there.
0: You mentioned before methylation. So for the people who aren't familiar with the term methylation, can you explain what it is and why it's so crucial, especially when it comes to perimenopause and menopause and breaking down those estrogen metabolites even further? So what does that mean?
1: Yeah. Methylation is the last, last step of detoxification with, with typically within the, the liver itself. And it's when we get a methyl donor to the products where the body can then it completely detoxifies it and kicks it out of the system at that point. Um, there is it's, Methylation has been a big topic for many, many years now. And it's kind of like everybody's got methylation issues. You have to do your genetic testing to make sure you are you know have the methyl issues and stuff. We don't get too wound up in the genetic testing itself because I've seen clients that have both uh, of the variants there, and they don't have a single issue with methylation. And you would, from the research, you go like, if they have both variants, they're really poor methylators. They need a lot of methylation. No, I've seen those with, with, with both copies of the genes that should be on, you know, a ton of methylated supplements and they, they don't need them. They do fine. So it's that, you know, genes, Genetics load the weapon and environment pulls the trigger. So it's looking at both those processes. There's that last little step of methylation is there. Some people need it. Some people don't. We want to look at the the test themselves as far as looking at, you know, the uh, Dutch test itself. We want to look at homocysteine and some other markers to go. Do you need additional methyl donors in that process? Because we don't necessarily just want to rely on the genetics itself. Just because you have the gene doesn't mean you have a problem. And it's because you don't have a gene doesn't mean you have a problem. I've seen plenty of clients because the research shows less than 20% actually have issues with methylation with the genetic with with it itself. Truly that's what the research is showing.
0: Oh wow, less than 20%.
1: Less than 20%. And some even say less than 10% is the issue. And so 80% of the population doesn't necessarily have a genetic issue associated with it. But I think as functional medicine practitioners, we get that 20%. So we assume like every single person we see and every person out there has methylation issues, you know? I thought it was
0: like but 50% of the population kept methylation. Yeah.
1: No, it's significantly less. One of the last talks I did um, um, when the research on it, yeah, I it was, it's, it's, I'm trying to remember if it was less than 20% actually have an issue that has a mild issue with it. And those that have a major issue, it was significantly less. It was way less than that. I think it's around 5% actually have a really severe issue with methylation there. So again, genetics tell us something, but what does the physiology do? So that's what we want to do is look at the testing to know, do you need methylated forms of vitamins? Are you an overmethylator? So if we give you methylated forms, you get worse in mm-hmm. that process. Right. So one way to test for that is just doing a simple dose of SAMI, uh, s methionine. Do that overnight and see how you feel. If it keeps mm-hmm. you up and you're awake, you probably don't want to have methylated products in your diet.
0: Interesting. In terms of methylation itself. So let's say for example, so the phase one and phase two detoxification of the liver and you know, your phase one is good, but by the time you get to that phase two, let's say for those that 20% or less that you're talking about that needs the help to get their methylation going. Do you think that maybe part of the reason why people don't have as much as a problem, as much problem as we think they do, or, you know, like you said, if they have two genetic variants and that they are like, if you look at them on paper, they're like, no, they shouldn't be methylated properly, but they actually are. Do you think that has to do with diet and lifestyle,
1: I believe so. Yeah, I think I think they usually those will be ones that are already eating pretty well, get, making sure they're getting in levels and they're they're not having an issue with it. That's the I mean key is overall is, you know we can we can supplement and we can medicate we can do all this stuff but we're not going to out supplement or out medicate a bad diet and lifestyle.
0: Mm-hmm. I, uh, well That's said, it. absolutely. That,
1: that is such the key is no yeah. matter what I do in office or any other practitioner does is if you don't do the work you're not getting anywhere you're still stuck at step one. You got to do the work to work on diet and clean that up. And, and we're just seeing it across the board. The more there was a research study that came out, um, I think it was a little bit, a few months ago, maybe last year that the standard American diet, North American diet, the kids now 67% of their diet is, is, is highly processed.
0: Wow. That's, that's
1: crazy. And that, you know, two thirds of their diet is highly processed foods. That additional third that's left a majority of that, it was saying 60% of that was still processed foods. Mm -hmm. So we're getting literally maybe 10%. And I can see, you can see that when you go out and watch people eat and everything else is 10% of the diet is a vegetable is a fruit. Maybe, um, is a good lean meat within there. 90% of their diet is garbage. And we're seeing that effects that, that's for, you know, for the last hundred plus years, we're seeing that effect in our kids. We're seeing increased fertility, infertility in, in kids and, and young adults. We're seeing increased obesity. We're seeing increased insulin resistance. We're seeing decreased sex drive in those kids and those young adults and our, in our population. Pardon? Behavior.
0: Behavior plays a
1: Behavioral problem. issues there also. And we're seeing it in that generation. That's the fertile generation right now too. That 35 to... Forty-ish too. We're seeing massive amounts of infertility. We're seeing massive amounts of hormonal switches in there. We're seeing menopause starting earlier. We're seeing the perimenopause start earlier. We're seeing it people in their ladies in their twenties. We're seeing guys in their twenties too. Uh, And just this pandemic, and it's all environmental related, not just foods, but the environment, the stuff we're exposed to. You know, I just at a seminar this weekend, and and didn't even you know you, you think about stuff, and then you forget it, and then you hear it again, and then you hear it a little differently. So the thermal paper that you get from the registers from every nearly every store yeah. that's loaded with BPA yeah. bisphenol A, which is a potent endocrine disruptor. So bad, yeah. Now with the pandemic we've been in for year and a half, two years now, all of the hand sanitizers that we use increases the absorption of BPA in our hands. So as soon as we get that paper from the from the cashier and we touch it, we've now just increased the so we're seeing this massive. The influx of BPA into our system from that from that little thing of using hand sanitizer to there. Yeah. So it's little stuff like that that we're exposed to that's creating this havoc and the number of endocrine disrupting chemicals out there that are that are chemicals in the environment that we're exposed to, that our parents were exposed to, that our grandparents weren't exposed to typically, has exponentially grown Then is now causing major, is now one of the major issues we're seeing that's causing this too.
0: Yeah. And that is so well said. And it's so true. I mean, add pesticides on top of it, add everything else that's out there. Like you're saying dry cleaning. I mean, although many of us aren't doing that as much anymore, if we're working from home or, but there's so many chemicals in our makeup and our personal care products. I mean, you're talking there, we are inundated with chemicals that are flooding our endocrine system and causing harm to our bodies and causing all of these imbalances. So I'm happy that you brought it up because it is so true. So being mindful of that when you are at the grocery store, if you can, ask for an e-receipt or ask, you know, or use. And I'm also not a big fan of using those chemical sanitizers. I always tell like, even my kids at school, I'm like, here, take this natural version, use this. Like there are natural options that are made with the ingredients that don't have those chemicals. And many of them, like health Canada, I live in Canada and health Canada during the pandemic recalled one of their hand sanitizers some of the hand sanitizers because there were some heavy chemicals in it. So like just being mindful, like there are different ways that we could still get what you need, what you want to achieve with it, but just using a less harsh form or less chemically informed.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, and I even say just use essential oils.
0: Oh, I love essential. oils. Those, those yeah. have
1: been really good to use to to help clean and, and sterilize. There's some good research on those also is just use the simple stuff that that, that works within there to to protect yourself and not cause increased harm. But yeah, e-receipts, you know, don't get a receipt uh, unless you're worried about, you know, just keep it, you know, keep and you feel bad for the cashiers, you know, because they're and, and, and they're just exposed to it constantly, you know.
0: Yeah. And you see a lot of them wearing gloves now. So when I see it, I'm like, oh, good, wear gloves. <laughs> like, we're, I mean, you know, depending what you're doing, but it is true. I, I do agree. Yeah.
1: Yep, exactly. Exactly.
0: Jerry, let's pivot to andropause or male menopause. What are some of the major complaints you hear from your patients?
1: So, yeah, it's, it's very similar to what women experience. We'll see, you know, they all of a sudden like can't lose weight. They're, they're getting heavier. Um, they're having decreased muscle. They're just like, I'm not as strong as I used to be. I don't have the energy. I, I feel tired. I feel exhausted. I have brain fog within there. Um, guys take a little bit longer to, to state the emotional aspect of things, you know, because we're strong characters, we can't have any emotion there. So they take a little bit longer to to state that there's some emotional stuff. They're a little more angry, a little more moody. There, uh, they'll also say, you know, over time they'll say, you know, I'm having issue. I'm having some erectile dysfunction issues. And I always say to the guys, I say, you know, there's a really good test that you can do to really see potentially why erectile dysfunction is occurring. And I call it simply the look down test. Is if you look down and you can't see your penis, it doesn't want to look at you so it's not going to, it's not going to go up there through there. And so, you know, if that's occurring, you know, that adiposity around the abdomen and everything else is you're just clogging all of the smaller arteries in your body and arterioles, and you're not going to have good erections. You're not going to be able to get an erection and you're going to feel down overall. So it's very similar to what women experience, except for the erectile dysfunction though. Um, but sexual dysfunction occurs within that process for women. Uh, but it's very similar to the symptomology that guys, that, guy, that women have, guys have too.
0: Now, is it similar in the sense that men can have, let's say if there are X amount of signs, signs and symptoms of andropause that they only have, let's say one or two, they could still be going through male menopause, even though they may not have something like erectile dysfunction.
1: Yes. Yes. Cause guys, guys are in particular, don't like to admit things are wrong with them. You know, they're like, I'm fine. Everything's good. You know? Yeah. So it's just, if it, just one symptom is just like really, you know, just like a woman, you know, one symptom means there's probably 30 symptoms they're having. Mm -hmm. And they just don't they just don't understand the words. There's only so many words that we use for like you said earlier. I think it was like 90 symptoms you had said.
0: Yeah, way over. Like it's over at this point. We've there's only
1: so many symptoms a body can have really is what there's only so excuse me, there's only so many things that are there. And those can mean just about anything. So it's able to tease those out and go, hey, are you experiencing this? Are you experiencing that? You know, fatigue or exhaustion or just low drive, you know, does your performance in life feel crappy? Do you have no energy? Does the drive the things you want to do? You just don't have it anymore. Do you feel super fatigued? You know, I had one guy recently, nice young guy, um, uh, mid forties, retired, retired police officer had a medical retired from, from, from his job there for a back injury. And he's just like, man, Jerry, he's at my gym. He's like, I just, I don't feel good. Like I have no energy to work out and, and I should, I'm in my forties. Like I just feel nothing. So we, he started doing some, um, uh, androgen, some SARMs, some select androgen receptor modulators on his own. Uh, and he started feeling a little bit better. So we did some testing and his, his testosterone was in the 200s super low i mean he should be in the 650s to 700s on the u.s scale i'm not sure what it is for canada for that one um so he should be like three to four times higher than what he is so i said well let's do some more herbal stuff let's try and see how you respond with it he added a couple things in and then he decided like the sarms just gave him too much um gave him too much aggression and so he we went off of those. And about a month later, he's like, I am worse. I'm significantly worse. So we're like, let's recheck it. I said, you're definitely a candidate for testosterone therapy, everything, all of the other markets, everything else was really good. I said, you're definitely a candidate for testosterone therapy. Your testes are just done. They're just not producing anything. Yeah. And so we ran his testosterone and we, we couldn't, it was, a, it was a 67. I've never seen a testosterone at 67. He should be at 10 times that at 670 essentially. And I was like, well, no wonder why you got nothing. So immediately we're like, okay, you are a candidate for testosterone therapy. Got him on injection therapies within he's like, when am I going to feel better? Like, give it two weeks, you're going to feel better. And two weeks, he's like, oh my gosh, I start to feel back to normal now and everything else. So you know, testosterone levels can vary in men. Sometimes we've seen them in the normal ranges and they still feel bad. And mm-hmm. it's because their free testosterone, which is more of that available testosterone, mm-hmm. is not high enough. So we'll work on getting that up there too. So What's men t- are pro- Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Okay,
0: so-, so-, <laughs> so I was gonna say, so men, what should they be testing? So for the women, so let's say uh, their partners or their mothers, sisters, aunts, whatever, listening, and they're like, okay, I really need to talk to my- spouse or my, like whatever it is, what should they be testing so that, and what is that optimal range for men? Let's say you said in their forties, it should be at that six to 700. What about fifties? What about sixties?
1: Ideally it should be the same. Okay. It should be that we should be able to stay right there. There's no okay. reason why it should decline. There's no reason why it should now an 18-year-old at 800, you know, we shouldn't necessarily at 70 be at an 18-year-old level, but they should still be that 650 to 750 range. And your free testosterone is more of what we want to see there. And that ranges from 18 to 25 is what we typically want to see on the, on the scale we're using down here right now. Again, I'm not sure what it is for Canada there, but about the 18 to 25, I think it's picograms per deciliter. Um, That's the range we want to see for that for guys. And, and again, the, best, more,
0: uh, the best testing method would be... Would be you said so there's blood or would the dutch be the best way to go that route too blood
1: you need blood to know where it's at we want to know from the dutch are you breaking it down to alpha or beta testosterone uh, or alpha again or alpha or beta testosterone you want know, the alpha form which is the more masculine form uh, versus the beta or gamma i just totally blanked on that we want the alpha form for men, the other form we want for women there. And then we want to see, are they converting to estrogen? Because a lot of guys have estrogen dominance issues. That aromatase enzyme is kicking like crazy. And we'll test estradiol in the blood to see what it is. We'll also test the metabolites because guys will have the same issue. We, that 2, 4, 16 estrogen ratio there, it is the same for guys. We want high twos, low fours and 16, because that can stimulate estrogen-based cancers in men, breast cancer in men, testicular cancer uh, in that process too. And prostate cancer. That's one of the biggest misnomers i'm just gonna like it just totally tri- switch over a different one yeah. prostate cancer and testosterone there's one article in research that shows testosterone is a factor for for prostate cancer one it's from the 1940s one guy that gave testosterone to okay. develop prostate cancer so ever since that time they've said guys who have prostate cancer need to be basically chemically castrated and no testosterone in their system whatsoever it's totally bs it's totally right. bs Okay. Uh, and we need to look, and then they're ruining guys' health because of it, because testosterone does not, from the research itself that we're seeing, testosterone is not causing an, an, an increasing press prostate cancer in men. But get total testosterone, get free testosterone. Those are two. Get a PSA because we want to know if, t- if the prostate is swollen there. And if you have an elevated PSA, figure out why it's elevated. It's usually because it's something going on with the gut itself. And so you check the gut, leaky gut. You're going to have, if you have leaky gut, whether you're a male or a female, you're going to have leaky something else. You're going to have leaky ovaries. So you get estrogen and progesterone issues in women. You're going to have leaky testes in men and leaky prostate. So we're going to see changes in testosterone levels. We're going to see changes in PSA levels, prostate specific antigen. Um, And we're going to see other membranes neurologically go wrong too. We're going to see cardiovascular go wrong. It's all because of that leaky membrane in the digestive tract. And I've seen it with guys. I had a guy... Um, not that long ago came in his, his PSA went from normal level, like a two or less jumped to an eight, like it Mm. quadrupled quickly. And they were like, uh, we need, they're like biopsy, all this stuff. He had a scan, which was good. I said, get a scan first. Don't go right to biopsy. We want to know where a tumor may be. Um, didn't see anything there. I said, okay, let's run. He had some digestive issues. I said, let's run, you know, a stool test, found some dysbiosis, Fix the dysbiosis, his PSA went from the eight to one. Wow.
0: Unbelievable. And they were ready,
1: they were full on, ready to go in, just full on everything. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is a sudden change. His age group that doesn't necessarily mean prostate cancer. What's you know, let's do some other scanning to make sure we don't see a tumor in there. And then that gave us the, the ability to go, if there's a tumor in there of some sort or cancer or something else, then we know where to do the biopsy at. Otherwise, it's poking holes in the dark, hoping you get a a cell, you know, so docs need to stop doing that process and actually do the scans to see where there may be growth and then target it correctly. Otherwise, you could miss it or not get it at all.
0: So in terms of correcting, so I know there are tests you can do for leaky gut, like checking your zonulin levels, and there are certain labs that can do that. So how did you treat him? So, and I'm guessing that the treatment would be the same for whether he's a man, for a male or a woman, right? When you're talking leaky gut. Talk a little bit about the protocol, because that could be overwhelming for some people going, okay, so now we know we have leaky gut, but where do I go from here?
1: Yeah. So with the leaky gut one, it was simple. I, I use a real simple one. There's a lot of different acronyms out there for it. I use weed seed and feed. because so everybody has a yard. They understand. Most people have like put chemicals on their yard to get rid of the weeds. They've seeded their yard. They fed their yard. You know, so I use that weed seed and feed process. We need to weed out the bad, bad, bad microbes that are there, whether it's bacteria, parasites, yeast, fungi, mold or or worms within there we need to weed those out while we're building up the flora and then once we get that through a good phase then we go in that feed and seed process where we're still seeding it and then we're feeding the microbes and feeding the cell walls to finally heal and seal and correct the leaky process that's there we usually say minimum three months sometimes a little bit longer again depending on how they respond and how quickly they can go with care uh, once that's done then that kind of heal and seal or weed and feed pro- or weed and seed process is usually again how much calprotectin, how elevated it was, how that zonulin score was is gonna dictate the length of that. So it's usually four to nine months, someone there, the average client's about five, six months of fixing gut, but they start seeing symptom improvement within the first month through there. That's the process we that go through. And, and, and again, removing foods that could be contributing to it. We get a lot of clients that come in and go, I want a food sensitivity test done. I'm like, well, what's going on? You know, And they're like, well, I got all these foods I'm allergic to and I've got all these issues. And I'm like, okay. You're not allergic to all these foods, you have a leaky gut. And you can spend the money on that and realize that, okay, you're allergic to everything, allergic, quote unquote, to everything. Or really, it's because you got leaky gut. So, Get the stool test done. They got, usually have massive leaky gut, massive intestinal f- infections within there. We treat it. And I say, once we get things going, then we can fix you as you get fixed. Then we can bring those foods back in and see how you respond. They usually stop re- responding to 90 plus percent of them. And there's usually some at the end that they do truly have a sensitivity to that they're just like, don't eat. you know. And so you know if, you, if it bugs you, and I've seen on food sensitivity tests where a person um, it was years and years ago and he was like, I want to prove I don't have a gluten allergy because I want to eat at Olive Garden every day, have breadsticks and pasta and all this stuff. And he uh, so I said, let's do a food sensitivity test. And I said, it's probably going to show neg- uh, you know, a negative test for gluten because they weren't really good back then with gluten sensitivity for those. But I said, still go off of it because you're going to feel better. And and it did. It showed a negative test. and He was like, I'm not allergic to it. I said, well, you know, but he went off the grain and stuff. Took us a while to get the test back. In six weeks, he lost like 30 pounds and was feeling great. I was off off his cholesterol meds. I was like, well, there, just stay off of it. He's like, yeah, okay. I agree with you. But it was funny. He came back as highly sensitive to asparagus. I was like, I said, did you eat a lot of asparagus? He's like, no, I hate asparagus. Ever since I was a kid, I hated asparagus. I just don't like it. It makes me feel funny. I said, well, you actually have a sensitivity to it.
0: Wow. And we're talking about the signs and symptoms of menopause. So would you say that a lot of it are, we can't say, of course, every single reason, but would you say a lot of it stems from either hormonal imbalance or gut issues?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's either a hormonal imbalance, typically not always estrogen. We we get kind of caught to that estrogen for, for women. And a lot of times it's the stress response. It's the epinephrine and stress response, or it's a glucose metabolism issue. Those two are the big ones I see is stress response issues. We get that correctly They feel better, or it's a glucose issue. If you're waking up one to three o'clock in the morning,
0: yeah, your cortisol
1: <laughs> Your cortisol is an issue because it's a glucose issue. Your glucose is dropping at night and your body goes, Oh, we got to go to fight or flight to get that up. Boom. It wakes you up. Your glucose goes up. Now I'm awake. So you get those balanced better and, uh, and it takes care of a majority of the symptoms there. Then we can kind of go, okay, do you need a little estrogen? Do you need a little more hormone balance through there? But most of the time it's a glucose metabolism and stress response issue that we see occur.
0: I'm obsessed with managing blood sugar. Like I would wear a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. And I've met, like I've actually been wearing one for almost a year now. And just, I always say I'm an N of one because I'm so passionate about this and understanding how blood sugar affects women in perimenopause and menopause. So definitely, you know, and, and also the other interesting thing about blood sugar too is if you're waking up, for those of you who are listening and you're waking up to go to the bathroom many times a night, it could be because of a blood sugar issue as well. Because when our blood sugar goes, when it rises, it actually is causing us to go to the bathroom to in, in order to help us clear and regulate it so
1: interesting exactly.
0: so in the interest of time i have one i want one more talk, topic i want to cover before we go which and you've alluded to it a couple of times you've talked about you know stress response so mm-hmm. we're talking about you know i want i want to get into what does that mean i want to talk about cortisol levels and how does that affect us especially as we're in perimenopause and menopause whether it's women or men
1: Mm-hmm. So the stress response itself is anytime we get a stressor, that fight or flight happens. So we immediately get, we immediately get the epinephrine, which is in and out. That's, that's like boom and done. That's how quick it is. It's a, it's an immediate response from the nervous system. It's the only spot in the nervous system that has a direct uh, connection to the blood supply. Cause we need that in and out as fastly as possible. So that's like, boom, 0.8 milliseconds, we have that going. Within, point, I think it's 0.2 milliseconds to 0.6 milliseconds, after we get that epinephrine, cortisol then kicks up from the adrenals. And cortisol is designed to support that stress response, support the immune function during there, So our body can continue to fight or flight and fight off infection if we get an infection in that process. So that's the response. We get it and it's supposed to go away. And we get it and it's supposed to go away. Unfortunately, in today's society, we have this chronic, really unpredictable stress. I call it, and if you look at the research too, it's there, there, it's called chronic unpredictable stress. So it's cuss. (laughs) And then we have a maladaptive stress response that comes after us. I call it cussmas. It's like the unfun Christmas, but it's cussmas through there. So when we we see that is this, all this unpredictable stress that we have, because and in the environment itself, it's just, we get a stressor, we're done. But in today's society, like I'm saying, we have so much chronic and it's the thought of the stressor, the thought of the thing occurring is more stressful to the system because we have chronic stimuli there that's constantly going and going and going, that's feeding that process. That's causing the issues. So we don't get the stressor and we're done. Like our grandparents got the stressor. They were done. They went back to life. We get like, oh my gosh, I got this bill to pay. I got this to do. I got to pick up the kids. I got to go over here. My husband's driving me crazy because he's not doing what I'm asking him to do. He's got the honeydew list. He's not doing, you know, we have this chronic, this stimuli to our system. That's causing that to happen over time. That cortisol elevates. And the metabolites, uh, the Dutch test go up too. Then what happens is the metabolites stay high. Then they drop down because the cortisol is try is going to is starting to drop there. And so then they start holding and going lower to try to keep that cortisol up even more in the system. And eventually it just kind of just fails. And now it's not a, a um, you know a Cushing's or Addison's type disease where it's too much or too low because the adrenals are actually done or they're overproducing, or there's a tumor there. It's just a maladaptive stress response. So we see that occur in there and we have to balance it out. And and, and unfortunately, if you don't look for it, you're not going to find it. And, And docs will run just a morning cortisol in the blood, which will catch that morning peak. But most people are totally normal. First thing in the, excuse me, quote unquote, totally normal first thing in the morning, but it's the curve throughout the day that we wanna see that happens through there. Um, So that's one of the big ones is that one just, just causes so many problems in people and wreaks havoc throughout the system. If we're overly stressed and we're worried about so much, our reproductive hormones then start shifting over there because our body is not long, not in rest, digest, and reproduce. It's in stressed out. So then we see the fertility issues come up. We see more hormonal imbalances come up. We see the perimenopause, menopause issues come up, the male menopause, andropause, fat syndrome. All those things come up in the body that occurs there.
0: So what are some things that we could do? So, for example, most of us, like you're saying, are under that chronic stress. So if we're waking up between that 2 and 4 a.m. timeline and we know that cortisol is probably the reason for it, you know, spiking at that time or it could be, like you said, blood sugar issues. What are some things that we could do to help? I guess it's more the word wouldn't be so much lower cortisol as much as regulate.
1: Cortisol. Regulate cortisol. Yeah. And looking at those nighttime ones, phosphatidyl serine is a really great supplement to take at night um, to help balance those cortisols. So that's a that's a phenomenal one. I really like another one from um, Designs for Health called Catecholacalm, And that calms those catecholamines, those stress response hormones down significantly, helps people sleep, uh, making sure you're getting sleep. So using melatonin at night also. Um, if you're below 20 on a Dutch test, you're deficient and you need melatonin through there. Uh, so helping that to get rest and get re- recovery is really beneficial and making sure having some food at night to balance the glucose levels out. So we're not seeing that drop and then cortisol response occurring in there. Um, those are some real simple things for people to do not using our phones. At night, getting away from the screens, getting away from the computer screens at night, um, at least two hours before bed, or at least using the blue blocker glasses to block that blue light from coming in, will help regulate that cortisol response even more. So, um, getting outside more, getting in nature, going barefoot in grass, doing, um, and I always pronounce it wrong, shinrin yaku raku, a in Japanese yaku, forest yeah. bathing. Definitely. Yeah, love that one. Love that for people to get outdoors, get nature from in nature, absorbing the the positive chemicals from there, um, getting a good diet. Just keeping it simple and not stressing about it is is really essential to balance it. Because if we get worried about doing all these things, then we just recreate the problem there.
0: And yeah, so going to bed at the same time every night, making sure that you're consistent. That's another thing. Our adrenal glands love consistency, right? So yep,
1: yep. Dark room, less light in the room, the better. Um, dark curtains, the dark curtains, the light blocking curtains to make sure no light is coming in where my bed sits, where my wife and I bed sit, I face a window and there's just enough little teeniest crack that the neighbors across the way's back porch light shines through it. And that little bit of light is enough to annoy the life out of me. So yeah. I have to, I actually have a, a black piece of paper in the corner of our window that blocks <laughs> that light from coming in. It's just enough, I get it. It's just enough to hit my eyes, to get through my eyelids, to cause, it. and they're not that, they're, I mean, they're, they're 75 yards away. Yeah. Uh, from us, but it's still enough to hit in there and irritate me. So, darkness is essential to make sure we're getting good sleep and good rest um, um, and not stimuli to our system there.
0: And that's why I love sleep masks because they work really well in terms of getting those lights out or like taking yeah. your safety pins and putting put on your curtains. I'm just kidding.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it works. Work, you know. paint, your, paint your windows black. You know, it'll, it'll all be good there. I, I've tried to use masks before, but I don't like that band around my head. Yeah, uh, bander, so.
0: Yeah, I'm a big fan of melatonin, too. And a lot of people I know prior to menopause, you know, some people complain about it making them really groggy. But I find as we get into perimenopause and menopause, that melatonin is really crucial for helping us get into that REM sleep quicker.
1: And melatonin, again, you can do up to 20 milligrams of melatonin. Uh, We've seen that work for people. It actually helps. It actually works as an antiviral at that point, also. Um, Some of the research shows that too. Is a higher dose of melatonin can help there, Um, but usually three to six milligrams is the is usually works for most people. Again, start with three, see how you feel. You can work up to six.
0: You may bring up a good point. Is that. And and this is something that I've learned a lot over the last few several years is that not everything is for everybody. So you if some people say, oh, this has helped me. And then people are like, well, it doesn't work for me. Not Mm -hmm. everything is gonna be suitable for everybody. So that's the key is trying it, starting out slowly. Like you said, follow the directions on the bottle. You can work your way up if you need more on certain things, right? More is not necessarily better. And I think we need to understand that, especially when it comes to supplements is more is not necessarily better. We need to look at what the research says. What were the human, what were the clinical studies done on what dosage? And that's really what I think is an important point to mention. So um, I'm glad that you even brought that up because even though you're an outlier, it literally is everybody's different, right? And not everything's yeah. going to work for everybody.
1: Everybody's an N of one that comes into the office and I tell them that they're like, well, wh- what's the time frame that this, like? because we're so used to hearing time frames, like, oh, this is six to eight weeks. This is this time. I'm like, listen, You've been dealing with this for years. We're not going to fix it overnight. It's going to take time. And, and digestive things are going to take time. The worse it is, the longer it takes. But we're going to see improvement through that time. If we don't see improvement, then what are we missing? And like you said earlier, which I've used for 20 years, is tests don't guess. You know, we used to have to guess on stuff. And luckily, in the last... 15 years in in my clinical practice is we've had more and more testing and more and more advanced testing, be able to do things. So that way we don't have to guess anymore. We don't have to waste time and all this money. We can literally like, here's the test, do it. Here's the results. Here's what we're going to come up. And here's what we're going to fix you. You're going to fix yourself with these tools through there. I love supplementation. We use a lot of supplements in our office. It's again, we're not going to out supplement or out drug a diet and a lifestyle. So work on those things. And sometimes clients are like, man, I got so many supplements. And I'm like, well, that's because you're not working on your diet. You're not working on the things you need to do to correct it. If if that's what you want, fine. You know, I'm okay with medications. I'm okay with supplements. I'm okay with surgeries if we need to. But it's like, what's the best scenario for you to use? And what are you willing to do to take control of your health and take control of your life? So you're in charge.
0: Yeah. Well said. I love that. Is there anything before we end today's interview that we haven't talked about to leave a message, a tip for women who are listening, who are in perimenopause and menopause right now?
1: Ladies, if your doctor are telling you there's nothing wrong with you, that it's in your head, they're fools. Go find somebody else. They don't know what they're doing beyond what they're doing. That's it. They know up to that point. But if they know up to that point, they're like, your labs look normal. You're fine. It's in your head. Don't listen to them. Find another practitioner that's going to help you because there's a lot out there that know a ton more. I don't know drugs. If you ask me, I mean, patients are like, I'm on this drug and this drug. Should I be this? I'm like, I don't know. There are too many weird names. I like the herbal names, the Latin names of stuff. They're so much cooler. It's like, I don't know the drugs. I know what they're supposed to be doing, but I don't know what they're doing. I don't know. You know. Once you get past three drugs, nobody knows what's going on with your body. Right. You know, nobody knows the clue, but don't take the, there's nothing wrong with you. That means the doctor doesn't know
0: hmm.
1: find a doc, practitioner of some sort that's going to dig deeper and really help you develop a better you and optimize your life and health till you get the results that you want. And don't take, we don't know, don't take it. It's in your head as the answer. That's complete. BS. Now I do say this as a joking manner, because I use a lot of humor in my practice too, is the doc said it's in your head, right? And you're like, yeah, I said, well, technically they're right because everything gets registered in the brain, but it's not the answer we're looking for. We got to dig deeper and find out what's going on and how to correct that. And often it's some simple physiological Mess up that's happening that we just can put a few things in and get it to balance out. Work on the lifestyle stuff so that way it fixes itself and you can go back to normal. And hopefully we're not on that supplement forever. We're just on some base things you need because there's just things we don't get in our diet. And even if you're eating a purely organic, wild caught, amazing diet, you're exposed to too much in life that you still need support in that process.
0: Hmm. I love that. So what is the name? Just um, what is the name of the stool test that you're talking about that people can get?
1: I currently use the Vibrant Wellness's Gut Zoomer that's the one I use from Vibrant Wellness or Vibrant America. Um, we use that one. GI map is another really good one that, that we've used in the past. And then the GI FX from designs for health or from, excuse me, from Genova is another really good one. Those are the top three. We really like the, the gut zoomer one itself. The cost is spot on for us. It's 399 for that test. Um, and it gives us about a 35 page report um, on your microbial load, your viral load, anything that's going on there, along with amazing markers for all that inflammatory stuff that's going on. And I've given that the medical doctors and GI specialists, gastroenterologists, and they're like, this is an amazing test. This is way more than we do. And we're like, yeah, just yeah. look at somebody's poop. I don't look at their poo. The lab looks at the poo. Don't be like, do I need to bring the poo back in. I'm like, don't bring your poo into my <laughs> office. Send it <laughs> off, please. I don't, I got enough poo around here. Um, so you send it off, you get amazing results from it. And, and then you're able to know how to fix somebody and how to fix their gut, which then affects everything. I mean, If we don't fix the gut, nothing's going to get fixed in a person.
0: Oh yeah, I totally agree. Okay. So just to recap that in terms of testing. So you've got the poop test, you've got the blood test for the hormone for the sex hormones. And then obviously you've got the Dutch test for the urine test to find out the metabolites. And then if you want to do genetic testing, there's a genetic testing option as well. Mm -hmm. Dr. Jerry Bailey, thank you so much. This has been great. And how can people find out more about you?
1: Uh, you can go to uh, my website, uh, lakeshidalistichealth.com or drjerrybailey.com. You can hit those. You can find me on Instagram under Dr. Jerry Bailey, on Facebook under Dr. Jerry Bailey uh, and Lakesidealistic Health. You can hit up those. We, put, we post stuff up on there. You can get on our email list also through our website to get our information that we do. We do a lot of webinars and master classes on health and health promotion for people um, to uh, take control of their life and health and get better.
0: Well, thank you for everything that you do.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. It was a blast.